Ignite your curiosity with Austin next. We're watching Austin transform from a thriving ecosystem into a global superstar. With our host, Jason Scharf, we aspire to better comprehend the true nature of innovation. Together, we will uncover what makes a successful ecosystem and navigate the technologies shaping our future. Now let's dive into what's next. The road to being an entrepreneur has many twists and turns. Starting that journey from a non-traditional starting place, in this case, the music world, can have even more unexpected challenges. Today, we're talking with Casey McPherson and hearing about his journey from accomplished musician to advocate and life science leader. We learn about the role of creatives in an innovation ecosystem and how he sees the bioeconomy playing out here in Austin. Casey has spent the last 25 years as a singer, songwriter, entrepreneur, and mental health advocate. His bands have toured the world and had songs hit the top 10 charts. However, in 2019, his world changed forever when his daughter Rose was diagnosed with a rare genetic disease with no cure. Two years later, after hundreds of meetings with researchers, scientists, and biotech companies, he started to cure a Rose Foundation, develop a therapeutic for Rose and children like her. Thanks to the hope offered by recent scientific breakthroughs, Casey's on a mission to save his daughter and change the way we treat children across the rare disease spectrum. Marrying his two passions, Casey uses music to spread awareness and raise money for rare disease treatments. Between meetings with biotechs, researchers, the foundation science team, and fellow rare disease advocates, Casey finds time to co-host the Gene Fixers show, Cure Odyssey, every Tuesday afternoon. Casey, welcome to the Austin Next podcast. Thanks for having me. So let's start off. Tell us the story of To Cure Rose Foundation. What, why you founded it? What's the mission and what are you doing? Sure. Well, you know, uh, I guess I'd start with, I, you know, I've been a professional musician most of my life and, you know, at the height of my career, I, you know, had a couple of top 10 hits, a video on VH1 and sort of worked my way to the middle, so to speak, and uh, got married, had children. And when I had kids, I really, you know, was, was trying to figure out, okay, I, I, I want to be home a little bit more than a few days a year uh, as a touring musician, you know, you're, you're gone a lot. And, and so I, you know, being in Austin was doing some real estate and some tech stuff and, and touring and releasing records. And, and I, I have two, two children, Weston, who's uh, now eight and uh, Rose, who's uh, now six. And when Rose was born, uh, she was having all these medical complications, uh, developmental delays. And so we went through the current, you know, diagnostic odyssey that our healthcare system offers, which is not much for uh, something that does not have a current therapeutic, you know. Um, and so we went through these panels, you know, what they'll do is they'll, they'll see if it looks like a you know, they're like, oh, this could be some sort of genetic disease or disease of some kind. And they'll they'll do these approved panels that insurance approves. And if it's not one of those, you just keep doing these panels. So, you know, Rose was struggling with walking, just falling on her face. She lost the few words that she had um, around one and a half uh, and uh, one and a half, two and choking on her food, just some really weird things that were going on. And, and so we, we ordered a whole, a whole genome sequence. And, and at that time it was about $10,000. So I negotiated that down to a few grand 
Um, I think now we can get it for a few hundred bucks, which is great because you got to pay for that out of pocket. And I walked into the neurologist's office to, cause I, you know, had that company send him the results and he's Casey, your daughter has a rare genetic disease called HNR and PH2 string of letters and numbers. And there is no cure. There's nothing we can do. Good luck. And so, you know, for the first time in my life, I reached this dead end in the healthcare system and, you know, I'm a dad and you'll throw yourself in front of a car for your kids, but there's no car to throw yourself in front of for something like this. And, you know, I'm thinking, is Rose going to suffer her whole life? Is she going to die early? Am I going to be changing diapers while I'm, you know, 75 years old? Just some of these realities and being an entrepreneur, you, you know, one of the first things you learn is, is that innovation is sort of key in anything that you do. And so your, your brain begins to sort of think that way. And just because somebody says something, you don't always take it at, at face value. And so I, I got online and I Googled parent cures child of rare disease. And that's where I started. <laughs> um, thank God for Google. And that sent me on this journey for the next two, two and a half years. Uh, that was quite remarkable. And so I, I immediately started stalking and found and contacted Julia Vitarello, who uh, her and Dr. Tim Yu uh, created the first N of one uh, antisense oligonucleotide for her daughter, Mila. And, uh, you know, there were, there were hundreds of articles about it and in the uh, scientific journals and economists and New York Times. And, and so she began to mentor me and connect me with people in the biotech space. And I just committed, you know, for those two years to, okay, I, I know nothing about this. Like I fell asleep in biology class in high school. So, you know, I, I, I began to sort of develop a network of people that could teach me and could help me understand this space. And so I talked to hundreds of biotechs, you know, CEOs and, and translational scientists and academics and foundations. And, and so what I learned was pretty interesting. You know, the statistics are pretty insane on rare disease. Now we know that there's over 10,000 rare diseases. Um, you're looking at at least 200 million kids worldwide. 30% of those don't even see their fifth birthday. And the reason why we don't have a lot of therapeutics in the pipeline for many of these diseases is as a whole, it's a huge number bigger than cancer, AIDS, and you know, all these other things. But because they're particular mutations and then variants within those mutations, it's incredibly small populations. And so from a you know, economical sort of uh, profit side, many of these will make zero money or the margins are super thin. And so it's not because we don't have the technologies for many of these diseases. It's simply because we don't have the right business model. So I decided, okay, I'm going to start a foundation. And, and like many of these other parents have done a family foundation where you're raising the half a million to a proof of concept drug and you're 5 million to a phase one trial and start getting that team together and, you know, becoming an expert in your disease and assembling your drug development team. It's basically like a nonprofit biotech company. So I did that 
started that about a, a a year and a half ago. And you know, the mission though is to create therapeutics for children with rare diseases. Because I immediately saw that this is a problem. Like this is totally unsustainable for parents like me to create foundations, become biotech CEOs, and learn how to develop drugs. You know, you think about the inefficiencies of of a 10,000 different diseases and a parent that, you know, you're looking at teachers, lawyers, a carpenter. I know all of these different people. And, and it takes a few years to really begin to understand the process and to actually even read a white paper, you know, when, when you're not familiar with, with a lot of these acronyms and words, you know, and, and so I wanted to start a foundation that became a platform for other rare diseases in other children, because I may or may not be able to save my daughter. We're fairly certain that we can, but when this, in this world, you're working with biology, which there's still so much to understand. And so that's the vision of to cure Rose. And we're starting with Rosie, you know, we're starting with her disease, which we call H2 and, and we're working on two different modalities uh, for that disease. So I'm pretty excited about it. Do you think we're in a different time now than say if this had happened 15 or 20 years ago? I mean, you talk about the the decreasing in sequencing, but something that, you know, our listeners may or not, may not know about, but you know, CRISPR would basically in short is gene editing is a lot easier today than it ever has been. And that's, you know, lots of interesting things are happening. Sickle cell uh maybe towards a cure actually in clinical trials, but when you have this kind of now horizontal technology that can may affect what you just said, like it's 200 million um, kids, but it's 50,000 or whatever, uh, you know, number of diseases where you have, you know, a hundred people having this disease, it ends up being more about how do you apply this horizontal technology? How do you feel about kind of the moment that we're in, in this kind of the, this tech bio revolution that can really help this? Yeah. I mean, it's really exciting. You know, uh, I met some parents and, and people that were, you know, I'm, I'm friends with, uh, you know, some of Tremere, Henry Tremere's deep circle when he was getting started so many years ago. And, and the access we have to, I mean, specifically short and long read sequencing is huge. Right. You know, the access we have now to high throughput screening so that we're able to do hundreds to thousands of shots on goal at one time that that's sort of shortening, you know, what used to cost you know, $30 million in 30 years, or maybe a hundred million in 30 years. Now we can shorten in as little as half a million dollars in a year. Um, and that's obviously when everything goes your way. Yep. Um, but, but it's, it's the other thing I've noticed is that there's a lot more academics out there that are really starting to look at translational science as opposed to just research. I want to know more about the disease. So, you know, we saw that at cancer a lot, at least I did growing up with these foundations around research and, you know, research is incredibly important, but as a parent who has a sense of urgency and, you know, you're, you're, I don't really care that much about understanding the disease as, as so long as we want to get to a cure. And so these platforms like CRISPR, ASO, small molecule repurposing, gene therapy and gene editing and, you know, prime editing and base editing will start coming online, I, I, I hope very soon. So it's a, it is, it is one of the, I think one of the most exciting times to be alive in this space. Yeah. And it's interesting we talk about cancer because 
we've seen that same evolution. If you go back 50 years or whatever, cancer was, you know, a couple of types, right? It was geographic based. It was leukemia and lymphoma. And today now, similar to the rare disease, but it's, you know, there's a 50 different types of lymphoma because it really is a genetic disorder. And I think that's kind of in many ways paved the way that we see all of these diseases. I mean, you can probably go into diabetes, which we have type one and type two, but I'm sure as we understand the genetic components of it, we'll see the same thing as everything else on top of obviously the um, behavioral and uh, environmental components as well. Absolutely. You know, it's, it's a, one thing that has sort of fascinated me that I didn't understand before this is, is each of our biology is so, so complex and unique to ourselves. And, and some of our challenges can be unique to ourselves. So as we look at solving the cancer and rare disease crisis, we're developing technologies, platforms, and processes that are really going to usher in personalized medicine. You know, and and that is very exciting. And to be a part of that, just to, you know, I'm I'm compelled because of roads. So I have a I have a, a unique set of drivers, but to be a small cog in that wheel is really exciting. Well, I'm not sure it's a small cog in the wheel, but um we're we're looking at innovation as an and, and here in Austin as an ecosystem, and a lot of it revolves around the tech class, but a lot of it also revolves around the creative class where you came from. And as a, as a musician, I'm curious as to how you see the interactive between the creative class and the technology class and how you see that affecting what you're doing as well as the overall ecosystem here in Austin. Yeah, I mean, I, I had no idea that I would have a unique voice in uh, this industry and growing up and learning how to write songs and make records. And, and, you know, you, there had to be something unique about your approach to stand out from, from the others. And there's a degree of, if you look at music from the seventies on, obviously maybe you might argue seventies were, were the best years, uh, but, but innovation is in the DNA of, of creation. You know, and and what I found was that on a sort of biotechnology side, um, you have maybe like a pool of scientists and out of those scientists, there's only a few that are really using the creative side of their brain. And I think part of it is the way we're educated around whether it's if you're on the tech side, whether it's coding a piece of software or the, you know, the biotech side, learning about genetics, that there's a, there was, there's a huge need for thinking outside of the box and asking questions that aren't typically asked in order to sort of rethink our processes on how to do that. And I found a voice in that, uh, which has really surprised me. And, uh, and so, you know, when I'm on a call with you know, seven other neuroscientists and drug developers, there is a conversation that I get to have with them that that has value to them. And I feel like that's largely because maybe the executive function in my brain is not uh, turned on nearly as much. And so, you know, as a creative, you really stop seeing walls and you start seeing opportunities and you start seeing possibilities. And and we desperately need that in 
sort of reaching, you know, these next steps in curative treatments. Well, let's pull on that string a little bit. How do we, how do we train scientists and technologists to understand that creative part of the brain and maybe unlock it a little bit more? Mm. Do I have to have somebody like you as an advisor for every tech company now? Or, you know, I, I, I will be honest, and this isn't sort of a slam. Maybe it is a little bit, uh, but the culture and academia, what I've seen, they need funding and they need to publish. And there is a level of fear of failure, fear of bad data, and this need to become a prominent sort of uh, name so that they can be getting these funds for their lab. And, and so there's a, there's a high degree of conservatism that is sort of a fear of risk and, and a fear of failure. And, and to some degree in healthcare, that's required because you're dealing with people's lives. But I think that if we could alter the incentives, you know, right now, innovation is not necessarily the top incentive for scientists in academia, which is where most come. And then many move to, you know, uh, industry, I think, in many ways for that reason. And, and so I think it's about giving permission and about creating spaces and cultures that allow for that, which is going to come from, in many ways, I think the university rethinking how they're running their tech transfer office, how they're running their labs, you know, uh, how they're how they're running their ecosystem with their scientists. Well, it's interesting because in a lot of ways, the universities see themselves as a basic science kind of organization as opposed to an applied or innovative science kind of organization. Absolutely. And you raise an interesting point in terms of how do we help the universities meet the goals of innovation in their model? You're right. Publish or perish, raising money for research. My wife used to work at a university. This one professor had come up with a innovation in mouse genetics, so much so that he was known as the mouse man. And... He had no problem raising money, getting a building built for his research, but he had no idea what these what these mice were used for. They were just used for other researchers to do their thing. And um, it's interesting. Is there anything specific to Austin in terms of how we're such a rapidly growing region that's allowing us to keep a healthy creative class or putting more that healthy creative class at risk? I mean, I sort of think both is happening. You know, we see these incredibly high housing prices and and it's getting more expensive to live in Austin. And typically your creative class is going to be a lot less concerned about making money and more concerned about creating. And and if they're in tech, then they probably get the best of both worlds, uh, especially in our city. And, you know, and so we see this, huge ecosystem of tech. And, you know, I'm so grateful for places like Capital Factory and others that are that are building culture of sort of startup culture. And I think there's a lot of creative class in that, um, at least some that, that, that I've met. But as an artist growing up, you know, I could 
live off of bet- between living off of girlfriends and about a thousand dollars a month, um, I could survive as an as an artist, you know, when I started. And now that would be impossible, you know. And so I think you always hear of the Silicon Valley guy sleeping in his car with his, you know, new startup. And, you know, I think we do need to be conscious of supporting that community because, you know, it's going to be crucial for innovation. So you made the jump from the creative class to the life science arena with no background and in Austin, which is not necessarily known for the kind of bioeconomy, say like a Boston, San Diego, the Bay Area. How would you describe the sector here? Well, it's, you know, it's interesting because it feels it doesn't. And I and and I may be wrong about this, but it doesn't feel like a community quite yet. I think there's some really amazing life science companies here and people here. Um, I don't know that they're well connected with each other yet. And, and so, you know, I started, there were three or four people, Scott Collins, um, who I'm sure you're familiar with. We've had him on the podcast. Yeah, he's, he's fantastic. And he was very helpful with me in the beginning. Rodney Bowling at XBiotech, who has now left his company and works for us, you know, developing drugs. And uh, Joshua, who uh, runs uh, Maxwell uh, Therapeutics. Uh, he's a really been a longtime friend of mine. And so those guys were real instrumental in, in my beginning days from a local standpoint. And, and so, you know, I think, I think us developing that community is going to be important because there's just a lot of brilliance here that's uh, sort of hidden behind doors. Yeah, no, and it's interesting because, you know, I was at a, a dinner recently kind of asking that same question, how do we, you know, how do we kind of connect the community? And part of it is also is what, and, you know, thinking about a term perspective, the bio community, the life science, med tech, because it's this big ever growing definition because you have everything from like therapeutics and synthetic biology to med devices to more software infrastructure companies uh, like Wheel. And how do those all kind of interconnect it? And then obviously them interconnecting becomes creates really interesting opportunities and the like. And I think I, I actually a hundred percent agree. Like there's, we're hitting a critical mass, I think of people here and how that community starts really interacting with each other, I think is going to be an important thing going forward. How do you see then things like Dell Med and these kind of new institutions that are popping up being part of that community, being part of that integration? Yeah, you know, there there is a uh, synergy, I think, to working local. And I was reading some biotech book about how Boston's, you know, biotech uh, com- economy community was started. And from my recollection, much of it was offering resources for innovation in that area. And so they were supporting sort of life science innovation and communication and, and people began to really build upon that, obviously, you know, via the university as well. But we have a unique opportunity now with with Dell and what some things Leah's doing and, and what their new vision is for, you know, genetics uh, institute and and University of Texas, the more people I'm meeting that have been working on cancer. So they've been doing genetics, but it's primarily been in the cancer region, you know, of, of therapeutics and, and now offering them some, some projects around uh, rare genetic disease, 
uh, I'm seeing a lot of really brilliant people sort of come to the table. So I'm, if, if we have an institution that is supportive and some companies that are, you know, willing to, to build innovation, then I think, you know, I think we have the beginnings. Um, and what's different than Boston is that we have an incredible tech field. And it's pretty clear to me that <laughs> at least with some of the work that I'm going to have to do this summer on Rosie's disease, and if I had some AI going around some of the questions that I need answered, if I had enough data sets to really help save some time, I, I fully believe that tech is going to have to be very integrated into the work that life science companies are doing to make these treatments faster, cheaper, you know, more efficient. It's, it's, you can just, this marriage is, is really happening at a, you know, alarming pace. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big proponent of the, the, the phrase tech bio rather than biotech, because we're starting to have, to your point, these horizontal technologies, AI, 3d printing, biosensors with obviously things like CRISPR and base editing and, you know, multi-omic sequencing is really producing a whole new set of things. And I know I have my opinion, but I want to add, you know, your thought on this, we talk about the Boston community. We talk about, you know, the San Diego and, and Silicon Valley when it comes to life science. And I think something that we like to bang the drum here is we don't want to be the next Silicon Valley. We don't want to be the next Boston. We want to be the first Austin, right? And so when it comes into this particular arena, what do you think is the secret sauce to make us uniquely Austin? Yeah, I mean, I, I think our low-hanging fruit is is uh, our, our creative tech partners. You know, it's they're, they're, what, what I've witnessed, though, is you look at a tweet from Elon Musk, oh, DNA is just numbers and letters. We can fix that with software. And, and your bio community is very hesitant to... Like you tech guys, y'all don't understand. This is not ones and zeros. This is, we're going at the speed of biology and there's so much we, we didn't create the program. We're trying to learn this program that's been created over millions of years, you know? And, and so I think I've seen some reservations between drug developers and, you know, technology companies. And I think that that we have the opportunity to maybe create some spaces for both of those parties to come together and really start talking about if there's a mutual respect that, that we can really get creative with this integration. And I, I don't think there's another city that has these sort of resources to do something like that. Casey, it's been great, educational and informative as well as enjoyable. But we always end the podcast with the same question. So Casey McPherson, what's next, Austin? Yeah, well, I I am hoping that next in our city is uh, more community around this. You know, I am looking forward to, you know, we have a lab startup called Everloom uh, that we're going to be working with. Baylor and UT and Dell and and Takira Rose Foundation and 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 others. So, you know, and Jason and Michael, the work you guys are doing. So I I think what's next for Austin is is community creation around a mission to get these treatments to these kids faster and to build that camaraderie. So I'm I'm looking forward to that and looking forward to being a part of that. 
Casey, thank you very much for your time this morning. And thank you for being on the Austin Next podcast. Thanks for having me. So what's next, Austin? We're glad you've joined us on this journey. Please subscribe at your favorite podcast catcher. Leave us a review and let your colleagues know about us. This will help us grow the podcast and continue bringing you unique interviews and insights. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.